You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Well, hey, good morning to you all. Uh, my name is Richard. For those of you who don't know who I am, it's a great joy to uh, welcome you to our online service. The sun is shining. It's a great day. It's a little cold outside, but the sun is shining. And so we are, as you've been hearing, um, are now entering a very significant time in the church calendar, and it's called uh, Holy Week and kicks off with today of Palm Sunday. And why is it called Palm Sunday? We're actually going to find out in today's text. Um, and as we jump into this, uh, it's the height uh, of Jesus' ministry, the height of his popularity. He's coming into Jerusalem. Um, and, uh, and so there's great expectation building around him. And so speaking of expectation, have you ever come across some of these funny memes of expectation versus reality? For example, like you want to take a family photo and you have this idea in mind that it's going to be beautiful, capture the best selves, and it kind of looks a little bit like the right side of your screen there, you know, not quite working out to what your expectation was. Or maybe that travel, maybe you're going to this idyllic part of the world, it's just going to be you and nature, you're just going to have this serene experience. And then yet again, reality is a little bit different to your expectation. And we could go on and on and on. If you've ever done online shopping and whatever you're about to buy, the item looks so good on the model or the person online, you get it, you put it on, doesn't quite match up to the expectation of what you were going to look like in that same thing. And so expectation versus reality, oftentimes we have expectations and sometimes they meet reality, exceed reality, and sometimes they fall short of reality. And so uh, we can talk about expectations. We can talk about experiences as well, like things that we've experienced. Um, about over a year ago, there's two experiences I've had, and uh, both of them have to do with two bands that I really enjoy. So the first one is called 21 Pilots. It's a, a band that I enjoy and, and um, enjoy the music. And so they put together a cinematic experience coming out of COVID because they weren't able to tour. They weren't able to be in live concerts. And so they put together this incredibly creative cinematic experience for people to go and watch in the cinema. And so I went along and I, I guess my expectation was kind of mid and honestly, it was one of the most incredible experiences I had um, enjoying that. It so far exceeded my expectation. When you have um, reality and expectation goes above and beyond reality, uh, we call that delight. Uh, sorry, we call that, sorry, when reality is far and above expectation, sorry, we call that delight, right? You have an expectation and the reality of it is way beyond what you expected. That's delightful. Fast forward to a couple of months ago, uh, another band that I follow is Coldplay, and they were live streaming or broadcasting a show they were doing in, I think it was Argentina, and they were putting it in, again into cinemas. I'm like, okay, the family, you're all coming with me. We're all going to go buy our tickets and we go and watch it. And honestly, it was one of the worst experiences. I love the band, but a concert is not meant to be watched. A concert is meant to be participated in. Right? It was the most frustrating thing sitting and like kind of you want to sing the songs, but it'd be awkward because no one else was kind of singing the songs. You want to be up waving your hands, doing crazy things, and you're kind of sitting in this cinematic experience. And so that expectation was not met. And we call that gap disappointment. When you have a reality that um, an expectation falls short of reality, we call that a disappointment. And so we could go on and on and on. And so, you know, when it comes to concerts, when it comes to food, travel, 
what happens when it comes to things like people? What happens when we have expectations of people and they don't maybe quite measure out? Maybe it's friends or coworkers or family. What happens when we have expectations of ourselves? That don't, maybe we are not fully realizing what we expected or where we expected we would be in life. What about people's expectations of us, knowing that we're not measuring up to people's or parents' expectations of us? That can be crushing and crippling. And then what happens when we have an expectation of God and God doesn't seem to be behaving or acting in the way that I expected him? That can be very disillusioning. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about that today because expectation of Jesus is incredibly high. And just as we've heard in a week, it changes very quickly. And so I want to read uh, John chapter 12, verse 12. And so how we could define expectation, it's a strong belief about the proper, and the key word there is proper way someone should behave or something should happen. Proper is the key. It's the genuine, actual way. But it's very hard sometimes to get a proper expectation, right? Sometimes expectations are, are way too far than what they need to be. And so how do we formulate a proper expectation, especially as we consider Jesus? So John 12 is 12. I'm going to read the, just this verse because I think there's a lot in here, and it's going to help us set the stage. And it says it like this. It says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So when I read the next day, I'm like, well, what happened the day before? Because obviously it's connected. And so uh, the backstory here is John's gospel is very different to the other gospels. He writes it in a very different way. And first, by 12 chapters of John's gospel, sometimes called the book of signs. And there's seven particular signs or miracles uh, that Jesus performs that John captures. And the last one, the seventh one, the penultimate one before Jesus goes to the cross it's quite a dramatic one. It's the raising of his friend Lazarus from the dead. And this has happened and it's taken place. And it's done two things. One, it, Jesus' popularity has gone crazy. It says a lot of people are beginning to believe, a lot of the Jewish people are beginning to believe and put their faith and trust in Jesus. But the other thing it's also doing is it's, it's stirring up a lot of threat. Jesus is a threat to the established religious system and leaders of their day, so much so that they're actually now plotting to take him out, to kill him. And so in response to that, Jesus actually withdraws. He takes his disciples and he actually withdraws. He kind of lays low a little bit. And then the day before of what we just read there, he actually goes back to the neighborhood of Lazarus. It's Bethany. And they have a dinner kind of celebrating him, commemorating him. And then this act that Mary, the, the sister of Martha, not Mary's mother, she does an incredible act. She pours expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and anoints him. And Jesus says something very, very unexpected to everyone there. He says, what she's doing is a sign of burial. Leave her alone. It's beautiful what she's doing. So Jesus is talking about burial and death at the height of his seeming popularity. What is going on? And so now Jesus, word gets out that he's on his way to Jerusalem. So here we are back at John 12, verse 12. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he's on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, arguably the most central festival uh, in the Jewish calendar for the Jewish people that commemorated and celebrated the story of the Exodus, how the nation of Israel, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, were liberated and redeemed uh, through the leader Moses. And so it's um, everyone is flocking to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Is Jesus the new Moses that's going to lead us out of our oppression through the Roman Empire at the time that was one of the most dominant empires. And so messianic expectation around Jesus is off the charts. 
But Jesus responds in very unexpected ways. And we're going to look now at the rest of this passage. And as we look at that, I want you to pay attention to the different expectations different parts of the crowd have of Jesus. And perhaps, if we're truly honest, can maybe identify ourselves a little bit with some of those expectations that we too might have of Jesus. So we're going to continue reading from verse 13 in John chapter 12. And it says it like this. So they took palm branches and went out to meet Jesus, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. We're going to pause there. We'll continue a little bit, but we're going to pause there. Now I want to look at least three different responses or three different expectations that we can kind of see here. And so it says that Jesus comes in and the crowd that's there, this big crowd that's there, begin to put palm branches before him, hence Palm Sunday. What were palm, what's the significance of that? Well, think of palm branches then as what we would have national flags now. It's a sign of national pride and power. And so they're really, it's an act of welcoming a triumphant king, kind of have that visualization of a triumphant king, and we're welcoming them uh, into our presence. And so you can kind of put yourself in their shoes, right? If you're a Jewish person, arguably this is a justifiable response to Jesus, right? You've heard, like, this guy has done things that no one's done. The way he teaches is something different about him. I mean, it's not every day you raise people from the dead and they're walking around again. Right, And so Jesus has created this expectation of them, and they're looking to him, is this the promised Messiah? Is this the Messiah we're to be expected? And so you can't fault them for that. I can't fault them. But you would probably be in that crowd. I would probably be in that crowd. But what they're wanting is not necessarily what Jesus wants either. And so he acknowledges, he acknowledges uh, his kingship. He's not backing away from that, but he does it on his terms. You know, have you ever heard that saying, don't meet your heroes? Right. And one of the reasons why they say that is again, because sometimes your expectation is not going to be met when you meet that person. And so it's probably better to have the kind of expectation in your head of what that hero is. And I think sometimes maybe they would reflect on this moment and said, yeah, maybe that was not the moment for us to meet Jesus because what Jesus does is kind of shocking. He grabs a donkey. Now again, for us, like what's all the symbolism of this? Well, if you were a triumphant king coming in, you would ride in on a horse. You would ride in spectacular. You would be You'd be enjoying what the crowd is saying to you. And Jesus, by choosing a donkey, is kind of rebuking the crowd. He's like, yeah, I am your king. I'm Messiah. But I'm coming in on my terms, not your terms. And so the lowly donkey is what he chooses to ride into Jerusalem. And what he's saying to the crowd essentially is like, I know what you want, but what you want is not what you need. And it's kind of like, again, that great lyric from Coldplay, all is forgiven Coldplay. I will once again return to your concerts. Uh, but in their song, Fix You, they have this great line that says, when you get what you want, but not what you need. And I wonder in times in life, if you've gotten what you want and realize it wasn't what I needed. And so we often conflate wants and needs. We do it regularly. 
And Jesus is discerning. He, he knows what the crowd wants. Is they want a deliverer. They want a political, a military leader. They want someone to dis- excuse me to display power to the oppressive Roman regime. And Jesus has got something entirely different in mind. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he's powerful, but in an entirely unexpected way that the crowd has an expectation of. And so we do this as well. We have expectations. Uh, we have wants, and we think those wants and needs. I mean, if you've been a parent for two minutes, you'll see this in your kids, right? They want something. They think they need that. And you know better, but sometimes it's like, okay, you want that extra bag of candy. It's going to make you ill. Do you want it? Okay, go ahead and do it. And then, you know, half a hour later, you like realize, yeah, that probably wasn't what you needed. Uh, but think about it in your adult life. Sometimes we think, we, I want that different job. I want to move to that city. I want that dream home. I want that different relationship. I want out of this relationship and this relationship thinking that's also what we need. And, and sometimes it could be. Oftentimes we realize maybe perhaps too late that actually that wasn't what we needed. Maybe we needed to stay in that job. We needed to stay in that relationship. We needed to stay in that situation a little longer to see God do something with that. Um, you know, there's a reason why up to 70% of people who win the lottery, you know, everyone says, oh, imagine winning the lottery. I want to win the lottery, right? Like, will change your life. Right? I will change your life. And the stats in it are not very encouraging. Up to 70% of people who win the lottery go bankrupt within a few years. Um, the majority of them say that their quality of life actually declined. Their quality of relationships declined. And so once again, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you want because is what you want what you need. And so Jesus knows what we need. And he knows what we want, and sometimes those are very different. So you and I are part of that crowd. You and I sometimes want Jesus in a way that we think is best for us. And Jesus defies our expectations. It reminds me of the the classic saying from Voltaire. He says, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. And so what he's saying there and what's oftentimes our experience is we want to shape Jesus into the image that we think Jesus should fulfill in our lives, right? And and so Jesus lovingly defies our expectations to give us, in order to give us what we truly need. And so there's the crowd. The crowd's expectations heightened, but it's a false expectation of Jesus. Secondly, uh, we see the disciples are there with Jesus, the ones closest. Their disciples, their expectation could be described as confused. Um, verse 16, it's almost a throwaway verse, but it says like at the time, they didn't really understand what was going on, why people were saying the things they were saying or what Jesus was doing or what people were doing to Jesus. But it took them to realize, have the aha moment after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus to go, oh, everything kind of went Light bulb. I mean, there's a key right there to having a proper expectation is to see and understand Jesus' life. In fact, to see and understand scripture from the vantage point of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Um, as one commentator put it, the need, they needed, speaking of the disciples, the retrospective experience of Jesus' death and resurrection to grasp the kind of king Jesus declared himself to be. And experience will do that. It's the gift of experience. Experience will temper our expectation, right? 
my expectation going into another cinematic experience of a concert is tempered by what I went through. And so the, the, the disciples, having gone and seen through, I mean, they're living in real time. They don't know the glory of what's on the other side of the cross. They don't know the glory, the pouring out the Holy Spirit. They don't know that the, the greatest moment is going to be seen as the most disastrous moment of Jesus dying on a cross. They don't know that. Let's give them a break. They're confused. They're misunderstanding. They may be getting swept up. They're following this Jesus. He's popular. He doesn't want to be with someone who's got popularity and fame and honor. And so, um, and so they, their, their retrospective experience gives them an aha moment. Okay. I understand all that was going on. And even the tragedies, it's all making sense. And so could we adopt that in our lives? We've got the benefit of this side of the cross, but we are also living in real time. Jesus said another thing. He said, I'm coming back again. I'm coming back and I'm going to make all things right. And we're kind of living sometimes confused. It doesn't look like it's really on track, Jesus. What do you make? What do you mean in making all things right? You said you're coming back soon. Can we talk about expectations of what soon mean is? Soon means in your language and our language. And soon is 2000 plus years. Come on. Time is ticking. And so could we take a leaf out of their book and say retrospectively, there will come a time. There will come a time when you'll be able to look back in the company of Jesus, look at your life and have an aha moment. Oh, that's what you were doing there. Oh, that's how you redeemed that horrible situation I went through. The book of Revelation speaks beautifully. He'll wipe away every tear. And so it's hard to know that right now. It's hard to know with the disciples right now. But trust him that all is going to be worked out well in the end for your joy and ultimately his glory. And then lastly, ironically, the Pharisees have an expectation. And it's quite ironic because it's actually prophetically true. They basically say, this is no good. We're trying to stop this Jesus. We can't stop him. See, the whole world is running after him. Kind of a bit of exaggeration, but maybe we could describe their expectation is exasperated. It's a great word, exasperated. It means you're irritated, you're frustrated, you're cynical. And for them, they feel threatened by this Jesus. Now, maybe you're watching today. Maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you're not sure, maybe a bit confused about what it is to be Christianity. Maybe you've seen only the negative, harmful aspects of Christianity and religion. And I would encourage you to hang in there. You know, sometimes the easiest thing to be is an armchair critic, right? It's the easiest thing to just reject and see only the bad. But it's really a lazy approach. And I encourage you not to be lazy, not just to be an armchair critic, but really investigate the life of Jesus. Because what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to tell us his expectation. But before he does that, there's one more crowd, one more audience that has an expectation of Jesus. And it goes on in verse 20. And it says this. Now, now that word now connects what we've just read to this part. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. So it tells us there's another part of the crowd that's the audience of the Greeks. And so these weren't necessarily from uh, Greek-speaking ethnicity, but they were probably um, God-fearing Gentiles that came up to worship um, at the temple adopting some of the Jewish practices, but not necessarily fully converting to Judaism. And so their expectation is beautiful. We could say it's curious and seeking. We're not fully sure what they have of what expectation they have of Jesus. But I love the line. It says, we would like to see Jesus. We would like, they come in a posture, I think, of humility. They don't go to Jesus directly. They're not sure, like, does Jesus accept people like us? We're Gentiles. We're not Jewish. There was a whole thing in that time. And so they kind of identify 
two of the disciples that had kind of Greek sounding names, Philip and Andrew, and then said, Hey, we would like an audience with Jesus. We'd like to maybe ask Jesus some questions, hear from him directly. He's intriguing to us. We're curious about him. We're seeking him. Is he the one that we should be looking to, to put our trust and follow? And so they seem to catalyze something in Jesus. It doesn't say that Jesus goes and speaks with them, but Jesus in the next few verses that we're going to read uh, says something. He begins to then talk about his um, upcoming death, talk about his expectation of what's about to happen as he enters into this last week of public ministry. And we're going to read from verses 23 to 26. It says, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So we'll pause there, but Jesus actually goes on for many verses after that, explaining, um, telling of his impending uh, death. Clearly in his mind, his expectation is vastly different to the reality that, that other people are trying to shape of him entering this week triumphant. Um, Jesus has a very sober outlook and reflection of what's about to happen. But the gift in that is that he gives us a proper expectation. Remember that word proper. It's not just having an expectation. Is your expectation proper? Is it aligned? Is it, is, is it, it's, is it heightened but false? Is it aligned with what truly God's expectation is? And so he says, Jesus' expectation is this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. His hour. Now, if you've been tracking this series, we started this way at the beginning of Lent with uh, one of the first miracles Jesus did, turning water into wine. And at the time, he said something interesting to his mom, Mary, who tried to get him to do something spectacular at this wedding banquet. And he said something to her, my hour has not yet come. And at least two occasions after that, Jesus said some of the things, my hour has not yet come. And now all of a sudden it turns and he says, yeah, my hour is now here. The hour has come. What is he talking about? His hour simply is his moment his destiny that was leading to the cross, the crucifixion. And it's in, ironically, in that hour that his glory will be manifested. Um, his earthly ministry will be completed and he will be glorified. Now, right there, you think like, how could this be a glorious moment when it's such a tragic moment, certainly from the perspective of his disciples and those around him? We think of glory. We think of it's, it's a weighty thing. We think of honor. We think of splendor. We think of power. We think of maybe even fame. That's kind of glory sometimes. we Is that going to come through a, a humiliating death on a cross? And so Jesus has a choice here. His glory could come through the crowd. Clearly, they're putting him up in a place of glory. Or the glory coming through the cross. And I'm glad for your sake and mine, he chooses the glory of the cross. And according to John, Jesus is not glorified despite the cross, but because of and in and through the cross. I love how Leslie Newbegin puts it like this and frames it. He says that the crucifixion of a man should be the ultimate manifestation of the glory of God is as scandalous to Jewish religious messianism as it is absurd to Greek philosophy. But it is true. For the glory of God is the outpouring of love, which is supremely revealed in the obedience of Jesus to death and in the action of the Father who gives his only Son for the life of the world. 
And this is truly good news for you and I. Jesus follows on and he says, whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant also will be. Whoever, it's open to anyone, Jew, Gentile, Greek, man, woman, Pharisee, sinner, tax collector. It doesn't matter. Whoever, you're invited into that. Whoever serves me must follow me. Jesus looking for followers, not fans. Fans are fickle. The crowd is fickle. That same crowd in five days' time will be shouting, not Hosanna. They'll be shouting, crucify him. Jesus doesn't want fans. He's looking for followers. And then lastly, where I am, my servant will be also. And there's a twofold aspect to this. There's a security that if we put our faith and trust and follow Jesus, where he is, we'll always be. Where will he be? He'll be with his father. He'll be in eternity. We get to have the assurance of that as we follow Jesus. But it's not just something that's way back beyond this life. Presently, Jesus is active and alive in this world, still doing his work. And so where his followers are, where Jesus are, where the action is, and that's what the pattern is for us. And so the pattern of Jesus' life becomes the pattern of the lives of the followers of Jesus. He patterns a life for us, and he does it by using a metaphor of a seed. And this is a great way because Jesus often just took things that we understand and he put incredible spiritual truth to it as well. And so you understand and in, in parts of the natural world, death is important for new life. Here in Canada, we're entering spring and it's a time when the death of winter now gives way to new life. Grass begins green, you begin to sprout new life. And so the death of things are oftentimes important um, and necessary for fruitful life to come forth. And so just like death precedes fruitful life in the natural world, so too in the spiritual world. Jesus said, if this seed doesn't drop the ground, it'll just, that's it. That's, that's all it is. But if it drops the ground and it dies, it'll give birth and life to many seeds. And so Jesus is inviting you and I into this kind of paradox, into this unexpected mystery that the, the worst thing sometimes is the best thing, that the most tragic thing sometimes is the most glorious thing, that there's life through death, that there's glory through serving and suffering. And he enters into that, models that for us, and then invites us to pattern our lives after that. How do we pattern our lives after that? Well, firstly, we're to trust Jesus. We're to trust him. We're to trust him in moments where we're a little bit confused like his disciples. Where we're to trust him in moments where we don't think things should be going the way that they should be going. Jesus, no, this surely is the way to a kingdom. This surely is the way to a crown, not a cross. And so we're to trust him when it goes dark in our lives sometimes, sometimes when we're confused, sometimes when we might get a little bit cynical, frustrated, irritated, whatever it may be. We're to trust him because he's gone before us in a beautiful way and shown us on the other side what that looks like, obedience to God. And then secondly, we trust him by treasuring him. Jesus said, look, if you, if you love your life, you'll lose it. If you hate your life, you'll keep it. Now, we know that's a dramatic expression. Jesus didn't hate his life. That's not an absolute command that they hate our lives. It just means a preference. It means to, to not prefer our life over something else. And so to treasure Jesus means to love him above everything else, even to the point of our own lives becoming secondary to loving him. Instead of grasping and trying to hold on to things that we value, we're invited to live open-handed, perhaps even letting them draw, uh, drop to the ground. And as they do that in that death, we can trust that new life will come. And so we enter into this new life as we too 
enter into death, spiritually enter into death, and rise anew into new life. And when we speak more about that, as look to the Easter weekend of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But as we wrap up here, as we come back to expectation versus reality, you know, Jesus may not always be what you want, right? But he is always what we need. He may not always be what I want in the moment. My wants and my needs are often very different to his wants and his needs. But when we trust and when we treasure Jesus in this way, his promise to us is that the Father honors and glorifies us. And so I invite you to trust and to treasure Jesus afresh today, perhaps for the first time, perhaps a renewal of that, perhaps coming afresh to him and trusting him and treasuring him in new ways. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite you to respond uh, as we go into the next segment of our service. So Father, Son, and Spirit, we're so thankful for your work uh, right here, right now, wherever we are gathered watching this, God, that your Spirit is at work in us, Lord. And so I pray that you prompt uh, an honest response from us. God, where we're lacking trust in you, would we turn in full trust to you, God? Where we're treasuring things a little bit more than we should above you, God, would you help us to relinquish our grasp of those things and leave them open-handed in your hands for you to do what you want to do. And God, that you would become supreme in our lives once again. And as we do this, Father, I thank you that you promise to honor and glorify us as we too look for life through death, for glory through suffering and service. In your name we pray. Amen. Now I want to invite you, if there's a way that we can help you take next steps, perhaps in that prayer, perhaps as we go into a song of worship now as we I invite the Holy Spirit to come and lead us into response. I invite you to make use of our Next Steps card online. We'd love to help you perhaps solidify your trust in Jesus and get you involved in community, get you involved in ways um, that will help you grow and treasure Him above all else. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.